0: Dear listeners, welcome to Faces of Digital Health, a podcast about digital health and how healthcare systems adopt technologies. I am your host, Tiasa Zaitz, and today you'll be listening about the costs patients face in the American healthcare system. New York Times and Financial Times warn that the U.S. is at high risk for a fast spread of COVID-19 because many people don't have the option to work at home. Plus, there's the uninsured, and there are 27 million of them, which are reluctant to seek health care. In general, out of the insured individuals, one third is underinsured, meaning that they face potentially life-changing treatment costs when getting sick. Christopher T. Robertson is a Professor of Law and Associate Dean for Research and Innovation at the James E. Rogers College of Law of the University of Arizona. In his new book, Exposed, Why Our Health Insurance Is Incomplete and What Can Be Done About It, he writes that, as of 2017, healthcare is the leading category of the 78.5 billion in consumer debt collected each year, which is more than 40 times the size of credit card debt. Furthermore, cost exposure has an important effect on health outcomes as many people do not take their medicines as prescribed in order to save money or allocate their resources for other urgent means. In the following discussion with Dr. Robertson, you will hear more about what kind of costs patients are exposed to in the United States. What is the role of technology and what it could be in curbing those costs, or at least make prices transparent and clear before a patient gets the bill? And how could the healthcare system be improved? Enjoy the show or read the summary of the discussion on our website www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Direct link to the recap of this show is in the show notes. Now let's dive into the complexity of the U.S. healthcare system. Christopher, I really loved your book. It's highly informative. However, I kind of found it very, very depressive in a way. Has anyone used those words to describe your findings?
1: Uh, yeah, I have heard that. It's. Uh, uh, it, I was a little surprised myself as I got further and further into the data in the course of writing the book.
0: It's been quite a journey.
1: It, it was over a decade, right? That's right. Uh, I started writing individual papers, um, starting with... Um, work under Elizabeth Warren at Harvard Law School on the foreclosure crisis and even then I found a huge role for medical bills in that story which otherwise seemed to be about you know corporate finance and the real real estate market but even there I found uh medical billing as a key problem and so a series of papers over a decade ultimately uh, sort of culminated in this book which tried to to synthesize them and tell the bigger story
0: um to put the focus a little bit to current situations and the healthcare crisis that's happening globally. New York Times and Financial Times warned that the US is at high risk for a fast spread of the new coronavirus because many people don't have the option to work at home. Plus, uh, there's the uninsured and um there's 27 million of them at the moment um, and they can be reluctant to seek healthcare it seems that in the us the coronavirus is going to be a big social status or insurance related healthcare issue how are you observing the developments of the spread of the virus from this cost job security perspective
1: you know we are really in the us at two big disadvantages on this front i mean the first is that we have very weak support for paid time off. So if someone is sick and they're working, say, in a child daycare center or in a hospital or in a restaurant setting, all very sensitive to public health, um, if they take a day off work, um, they may well lose you know, a few hundred dollars of income that day, which they were depending on. So we're really, sadly, because we don't have a, a safety net to allow people to take paid time off when they're ill um uh we're really incentivizing people to come to work and spread Ill- spread illness um even if they would prefer not to um simply because they can't afford to stay home so some major employers in the US do provide paid time off but uh over 50 million Americans don't have access to paid time off uh because they're um uh they're in smaller employers or or other settings where there's no actual legal requirement to provide provide paid time off so that's our first big disadvantage uh, to stopping the spread of this uh, virus. The second is that we've designed the whole healthcare system to make it really hard for people to get the care they need. As you mentioned, uh, almost 30 million people are still uninsured. Um, but then we also have um, uh, about double that many that are underinsured, meaning they have such big copays and deductibles that they really can't afford to seek care. So, some insurers in the US are saying they'll cover, for example, uh, the COVID tests, but um, they haven't said about all the other healthcare that may go along with it if you show up at the emergency room, which can be hundreds of dollars. So, again, we're really at a time when we need people to get early testing and get early treatment. Our healthcare system is designed economically to keep them away, as if healthcare is the problem rather than the solution.
0: Since you mentioned the um, underinsured, I want to explain a few terms used when we're talking about healthcare costs, just so we can have a better understanding further along the discussion. So, Your new book is called um, Exposed. Can we talk a little bit about what you mean when you say cost exposure and explain the differences between deductibles, cost exposure, maximum, out-of-pocket limits and copays, which you talk about thoroughly in the book I prefer the word cost exposure rather than cost sharing or
1: out-of-pocket expenses which are sometimes used. Both of those are sort of euphemisms because these are the costs that are not shared. These are the costs that are actually imposed individually on the patient. And often we call it's, it's not fair to call them out-of-pocket expenses because the pockets are empty. The patient is in the having to to take on debt. In order to bear these costs. And sometimes the whole point is to prevent them from consuming care in the first place. So they never dip dip into their pockets. So again, that's why I call it cost exposure. And that includes, as you said, deductibles, which um, as uh, all of these create what I call different zones of insurance. A deductible puts you at the beginning of every year in a zone of really having no insurance for the first, say, $2,500 in healthcare costs. You have to pay all of those out of pocket until you meet the deductible. And so then once you've met the deductible, you're in the second zone of insurance, which I call some insurance. In here, you might have to pay coinsurance of, say, 18% of hospital charges or uh, a co-payment, say $50 to go see a specialist or $450 to check into the emergency room. Those co-payments or co-insurance are together that second zone of ins- insurance. And then only when you reach um, uh, a third feature called the out-of-pocket maximum um, that uh, do you get the third zone of full insurance. And once you've hit that maximum, um, which in the U.S. can be up to $16,300 a year for families who are on employment, uh, employer, employer-based health insurance. Only once they've paid that much out of pocket do they really have full health insurance. And when they make the next healthcare decision, they can really not have to worry about their own ability to do so. But that third zone in the US, 16,300, that's a quarter of median income. Um, it's over a third of the income required by someone in the next quintile down. And so it can really be devastating for people to pay that much out of pocket. Um, so that's, that's the basic uh, definition of those terms.
0: It uh, reads from your book that it's actually really, really hard for patients to be sure about their potential healthcare costs, um, because they can have separate deductibles for prescription drugs, out-of-pocket limits may not include copays, pays and as you mentioned, one of the examples in your book two policies had the same $5,000 uh, exposure limit, but the gra- breast cancer patient would pay almost $8,000 in cost exposure under one plan and almost $13,000 uh, under another. Yeah,
1: that's that's exactly right. You know, part of my... Um, my approach as a teacher and as a writer is to try to make things clearer and simpler, but the U S healthcare system is not designed for anything to be clear or simple. There are in fact often multiple deductibles, different ones for drugs, different ones for healthcare. Um, and several things might be included or excluded uh, to make matters worse. There's a lot of healthcare um, and, and ancillary costs that aren't uh, covered at all. So for example, if you get prostate surgery and are income incontinent, you know, unable to hold your urine, um, you might need um, adult uh, diapers. Uh, but those are typically could be uh, could add up. You know, over the course of months, uh, but uh, those wouldn't be considered a cost at all uh, under your insurance plan. But very well could start to add up and make it more difficult for you to to um, to, to 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 afford everything. And finally, there are other things not com- that aren't included at all. Like um, if you end up at a hospital emergency room um, that's out of your network um or if uh, a surgeon shows up at the hospital that's in your network but the surgeon is not on your network those uh out of network fees are sometimes not included in your copays or deductibles either so um the actual you know black and white uh, numbers uh in the health insurance policy can just be the tip of the iceberg when um you actually get sick um you just uh, essentially pay until you are broke or pay until they tell you to stop
0: it's as a matter of fact, as of 2017, healthcare is the leading category of the uh, 78.5 billion in consumer debt collected each year, which is more than 40 times the size of a credit card debt.
1: That's exactly right, and, and strikingly, some of the credit card debt is actually medical debt as well. Um, uh, but one of the striking things about consumer debt in this setting is it it can be involuntary. By that I mean. You might show up at the hospital uh, in a, the back of an ambulance, and at, only after you're you know, conscious a day or two later and check out, you're presented with a bill. You've now become a debtor, even though you never signed a contract, even though you never took out you know, a particular credit card or something. And so this is why medical bet, debt can just swamp um, other forms of consumer credit. It's also one of the leading causes of bankruptcy, and as I said, a leading cause of foreclosure as well.
0: Which brings us to the question who should tell the patient about the cost he might have and when should the patient be um, faced with the potential cost? It seems that the first thing people think about upon entering the healthcare system in the US is how much it will cost them. But uh, in one of the books that you co authored in the past, Nudging Health, um, it's shown that patients' uh, exposure to out of pocket costs may undermine their cognitive abilities to make good healthcare choices. So, I don't know the 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 the, the opinions here differ. Um, author Elizabeth Rosenthal notes that it, it should be considered a doctor's obligation to provide you with financial information, but it's uh, also clear that doctors sometimes don't really know what the costs are. Plus, they don't want to discuss costs with the patient, as that would hinder their identity as caring for the best care. So it's really, really just like problems and complexity seems to be piling up when you think about it.
1: I do think that if we're going to continue having substantial cost exposure... Um, the healthcare providers, especially the physicians, really have to get into the game. They have to help their patients understand what the costs will be, and they have to help their patients get appropriate care in recognition of those costs. By that, I mean, um, you know, uh, for a wealthy patient that has full health insurance, it might well make sense to have a um, uh, a branded chemotherapy drug that costs $80,000 added to the regimen. But for another patient, um, that might be what oncologists are now calling financial toxicity. It might literally ruin their lives. But how else could a patient determine whether that's a good value for them, that additional, say, $20,000 out of pocket? How could they possibly determine that without having the physician's expertise as to the clinical advantages or disadvantages of that care? So I think if we're going to stay on this road, we would have to depend on the clinicians, A, to know the costs, and they're going to need some information technology to allow them to know what it'll cost for their patients. But B, they have to start thinking about those costs as a risk to their patients, right alongside other risks, like the risk of a migraine or risk of a heart attack if they take the drug. Um, there's a wave of really interesting research that shows that, you know, humans have limited cognitive capacities. And when you're trying to decide between, you know, two very difficult um, uh, options like one chemotherapy versus another, you know, you might be thinking about the side effect profile or the benefits to it or, or how it would, you know, affect your your chance of survival and what that would do to your family. Research suggests adding costs um, uh, considerations uh, can actually distract patients, increase their stress, make them fearful of things like bankruptcy, and then ultimately degrade the quality of the decisions. So in the U.S., we've had this notion that we would use cost exposure to make patients sort of be rationers and make good cost-benefit trade-offs. But in fact, the research that's emerging suggests it might actually degrade the quality of de- decisions um, since it's just really too much information to reconcile.
0: The <laughs> Uh, Did you, I'm sure you had uh, discussions about this with clinicians, and I wonder what kind of feedback did you get? Because, you know, once you start asking the patient what kind of treatment he can afford, it can quickly mean that medical progress doesn't make sense, or what's the point of medical progress if people can't afford it? And the second issue is that uh, patients react very differently to therapies and in order for medicine to progress and drugs to be effective many different patients need to use them so we know how they work on different profiles
1: that's right I, I think um, cost exposure really does drive a wedge between physicians and their patients it sort of makes the physician into almost like a, a used car salesman is the paradigm we use in the US as as sort of a, a rational arm's-length Trader um, and the the Latin is caveat emptor, buyer beware. Uh, and so, if if the physician is in that role of 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 selling one thing or another, where they get a cut of it and have to talk about the price, um, I think uh, some research does suggest that that undermines that treatment relationship. Cost exposure also puts the physicians or other healthcare providers, like the hospitals in the role of debt collectors, right? Because they have to then figure out how to get those charges actually paid from the patient's pocket. And so this is one reason I think um, physicians, you know, around the world are quite happy to leave the financials to the insurance companies or the public insurers uh, and let the physicians really just focus on the healthcare. Um, And um, this is a model that I think we're slowly moving towards in the U.S. Uh, Physicians, Started out here thinking of themselves like entrepreneurs running a shop, uh, uh, but more and more they're moving to salary-based models. Great hospital systems like the Cleveland Clinic, for example, are putting physicians on salary, really insulating them from those picayune um, uh, financial concerns, uh, haggling with patients.
0: Financial concerns, however, don't stop for patients. Can you explain uh, to the audience how is it possible that in the US an insurance company can reject a treatment request under the justification that it's not medically necessary? So in essence, a doctor can prescribe a therapy, but the insurance company can demand a pre-authorization review and deny payments. How do these pre-authorization reviews look like. So, you know, it it really seems to me that it's impossible to not be anxious as a patient in the U.S. healthcare system. Yeah, I mean,
1: this is an issue, I think, for healthcare systems worldwide, is they have to essentially decide how to spend um, the limited resource that is the, um, the insurance premium or the tax-based pool. Um, and so, you know, there are various mechanisms for prioritiz- prioritizing what we'll spend money on. The word rationing is sort of a bad word. It's viewed as a, as a sad thing, but I think it is necessary whenever you have limited resources. So in the U.S., there's a lot of healthcare care that, um, you know, is presumptively covered by your insurance. You know, if, if, you're, um, uh, if there's a drug that's FDA approved for your particular indication um, and the physician prescribes it, in most cases, it's sort of automatically covered merely because of the FDA approval and the physician prescription. But in the U.S., physicians are also allowed to prescribe drugs for indications that are not FDA approved. So you can take, for example, a a lung cancer drug and prescribe it for uh, brain cancer or vice versa. And in those settings, especially if it's an expensive drug, um, the uh, insurer will say, well, we need to evaluate whether this there really is an evidentiary base for spending all this extra money uh, compared to the standard treatment. And so um, typically then they'll require the physician to submit um, the request to the insurer. And in some case, the insurer um, will deny it, but then allow the physician to appeal the request, at which point it can lead to a phone call between a, uh, an insurance company physician and the, the treating physician where they sort of argue it out. Um, ultimately, in some of these cases, if it's still denied, um, patients can sue. Uh, in one recent case in Oklahoma, for example, uh, a patient recovered uh, hundreds of millions of dollars for an insurance company that refused to cover a, um, a proton uh, beam therapy for cancer. So that's sort of how it plays out um, in uh, trying to limit access to very expensive things where there are A relatively limited evidentiary base.
0: Do you know how uh, popular or how many patients decide to include a patient advocate in their story? So someone who knows how to navigate the system, who knows how to appeal and talk to the insurance company. And again, to which extent do patient advocates because they provide very good services, uh, attribute additionally to the already mounting healthcare costs for a patient?
1: You know, in the U.S., we don't really have a formal system of patient advocacy. Uh, There are particular organizations um, around particular treatments, um, uh, like ALS, for example. There's a pretty active patient community that will advocate on behalf of the group. But we don't really have a profession um, or you know specialist individuals who are there to help patients. Attorneys couldn't do it, for example, because um, the fee structure would just be uh, 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 too high to be feasible for any individual patients. But this is an area where I think there's a lot of opportunity for a, a growth uh, uh, in perhaps a, a new level of of professional to provide that support for patients in navigating an incredibly complicated healthcare system. Uh, so for right now, we don't have a robust system in place. There are some services provided by employers um, and some you know, individual informal networks, but I think this is a, a, a real opportunity to do more. But of course, as you say at the end, that will just be one more cost center um, if, uh, if those advocates expect to get paid too. Um, But um, as long as we're depending on patients to make really complex, difficult decisions, they're going to need that sort of support.
0: I think hardly after understanding everything that we talked about uh, so far, is it uh, more... um reasonable from the outside pr- perspective so for those outside the US to understand what exactly does it mean when big companies such as Apple or Amazon decided they're going to start building their own healthcare capacities
1: Yeah I mean there's there's actually a lot of history going back to um the early 1900s of of companies offering healthcare you know if you opened up a factory town in a rural area the, the company would actually bring the physician and offer the health care, but you know how that can be translated into twenty twenty uh, is another question. Uh, a lot of people are waiting with bated breath to see what this Amazon uh, healthcare enterprise actually looks like. You know um, It may just be a series of 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 cooperation agreements between current healthcare care providers, but we're sort of waiting excitedly to see if they come up with a, a truly novel approach. Uh, within the U.S. healthcare system.
0: If I go back to the health insurance in the U.S., I thought that the wording um, or the paragraph in the book that said that the U.S. healthcare system is based on a historical agreement around at least a partial cost exposure of patients um, and that a full coverage would be seen as wasteful and irresponsible. So this paragraph was kind of, interesting to me, because I thought that, well, you know, a lot of countries around the globe are doing exactly that, offering full coverage. So I guess it seems that there's a lot of irresponsible countries around the world. How would you comment that?
1: That's a, that's a, exactly the insight I was hoping you would have. And I, I, I delve into some of those other countries in the book, uh, countries like uh, New Zealand and... um. Uh, uh, and Canada uh, and a range of other countries that provide a model of dramatically lower cost exposures. Um, In Canada, for example, 70% of healthcare expenses are covered by the public payer and they have no cost exposures at all. Um, So uh, this is exactly uh, what I hope that Americans can see is that this is a choice we've made in the U.S. It's been a policy experiment and um, I think we're now at a point where we can call it a policy failure. We we have not gotten uh, reduced spending in the U.S. overall. We're spending a lot more than these other countries, even while we're suffering the terrible side effects of these cost exposures in terms of reduced access to care, bankruptcies, foreclosures, stress, poor decisions, etc.
0: Also, um, worse uh, medical outcomes because it's shown that uh, patients don't take their drugs accordingly to their regimen because they cost too much or because they think that if they're not going to take a few um, pills or just change their treatments, the cost is going to be more manageable.
1: That's right. There's been some fascinating research in the last 15 years or so uh, showing that um, removing cost exposures can improve treatment uh, adherence and outcomes, especially for patients with chronic illness uh, and especially those with lower incomes. So for example, uh, patients with diabetes, it's really important to manage your blood sugar levels and take the appropriate levels of insulin. And um, uh, in health plans that have eliminated cost exposures for insulin, you actually see poorer patients going to the hospital emergency room less often, right? Um, so we should really think if we're going to keep using cost exposure, we should think of it as a nudge, like a choice architecture. We want to push patients away from this treatment towards another treatment. Um, and and it should be targeted in that way. But we currently just apply it with a really crude a brushstroke ag- across all sorts of valuable healthcare that we really shouldn't be discouraging people from consuming.
0: You mentioned previously that you looked at other healthcare systems um, in the course of writing this book. So I really wonder, you know, what was your perspective on other healthcare systems around the world? Obviously, each one is different based on the historical development of the country and the culture, but still. Um what's your opinion? What was your were you surprised? Were you I mean did you feel that other countries are better off in when you get sick?
1: Yeah, I mean the United States has um some wonderful uh strengths um um but on the healthcare front it it really is not getting the value that other countries have proven. You know, other countries have uh, better, and then focusing just on comparable countries, which have similar levels of economic development, um, uh, you see, you know, much better health outcomes, longer life expectancy, lower maternal death rates, uh, better management of 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 chronic conditions, and doing so at both dramatically lower overall costs and dramatically lower out-of-pocket spending, and so. When you think of the other mechanisms these systems are using, um, including, you know, health system management and, um, and, and centralized planning of, of which products will be covered at which levels of, of reimbursement, uh, you see some huge advantages over the U.S. system, which is so uh, fragmented, um, and, it's, and, and it's based on some economic ideologies that, that really don't even hold in practice. So, for example, we've already talked about cost exposure as an economic ideology that's supposed to allow patients to make good cost-benefit trade offs and how, in practice, that's really limited. But there are a series of others, too. Like the U.S. system is, is based on a theory of competition. But in fact, we have only a handful of insurers, and in many uh, local regions, we have only one or two huge healthcare networks. And so, you actually have such concentration that you're really not getting the competition that the, that in theory is supposed to allow the U.S. healthcare system to be more efficient. Um, so, these sorts of um, what, what I would call market failures uh, really require the sort of solutions we see other countries doing all the time.
0: One of the aims of the book was to set the agenda for the next wave of reform in the US healthcare system. Do you care to comment the current debates around the healthcare reform in the course of the political campaigns for the next election?
1: Sure, you know... This is something that in theory um, everybody could agree on because even President Trump, uh, who's you know aligned himself with um, the right wing conservatives in Congress, he said that he was going to lim- limit deductibles, lower them, get better care for everybody involved. And so really uh, on the on his side of the aisle, he really just needs to get serious about that promise and do something about it instead of he's his, instead of doing the opposite. On the left, we've had this debate between Medicare for All, a single-payer system uh, represented by Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, uh, versus uh, continuing to tweak or modify the Affordable Care Act known as Obamacare, which uh, Joe Biden has asserted. But I think if my book can contribute anything, it's really to focus more on the cost exposures to patients, even aside from whether we move to a single-payer system. Or not. So, you know, re- regardless of whether Bernie Sanders or Joe Biden comes out on top, I hope they'll pay attention to eliminating copays and, and deductibles um, because they really have been a disaster for American families.
0: Realistically, knowing how slow and difficult change is when we're talking about um, changing the system and knowing how healthcare is politically divisive uh, topic, do you think it's possible to assess what can be realistic expectations of changes?
1: Yeah, it may well be um, decades. Um, we've seen the current American system is based on an ideology that's taught in uh, economics classes in high school and college levels that's really trained an entire generation of policymakers and policy advisors to think, that insurance is really the problem rather than the solution. And so this book of mine and some other work by others is really trying to to not just change the policy tomorrow, but change that very framework of thinking about economic issues. And so we hope um, that that we'll have a generation of policymakers that uh, can make smarter decisions. And as we turn that tide. So uh, my hope is that we'll see it in this very same presidential election. I'd love to see Um, you know, Biden and Trump both come around to focus on cost exposures. But if not, um, we'll keep working and uh, shape the the larger discourse around these issues.
0: Did anything surprise you in the course of writing the book and the research you had to do?
1: To me, what was surprising is how there are so many different angles to approach this question. Um, I think health policy has tended to focus on a certain sort of economic study uh that uh come out every year or two. But it turns out that there's some fascinating cognitive science research, there's some fascinating uh moral and political f- philosophy research, um, some research on consumer finance uh and, and debt and mental health. And so what it surprised me, I think, and which is really what excited me about writing the book. Was, was how there are so many different fields of expertise, so many different, you know, bases of data to bring to this single question of how we make uh, healthcare decisions when we're exposed to big costs.
0: As this is a podcast about digital health, do you have uh, any data or uh, opinion or research regarding how could technology applications and transparency brought by technology help with curbing the costs or just managing them better? Sure. You know, th- this has
1: been part of the, the the wave of reform is is using data to even realize how wildly different costs are across the United States. Um, There's been some fascinating research using uh, Medicare data showing that healthcare providers in some areas of the country are prescribing three, four, five times as many procedures for the exact same sorts of patients as providers in other parts of the country. So these data-oriented approaches are really revealing that it's the physicians that are driving healthcare consumption and the patients are sort of along for the ride um we're also seeing uh you know uh, uh patients trying to turn to to um uh databases of their own whether it's uh Yelp for physicians uh, getting ratings about them um or um some states have required uh submission of of hospital prices um but but so far there haven't been really great examples of of making such data reliable uh and making it uh usable for patients so, one of the things I suggest in the book is that we should probably expect the law to force healthcare providers to um, make prices more transparent to the patients. And that'll actually require an IT investment, I think, because right now, you know, your local physician that's recommending an MRI for you uh, has no way of knowing uh, realistically what that MRI will cost. So, I think it'll have to become a cost on the physicians themselves to be able to provide this information, develop the the IT uh, uh, backbone necessary to do it.
0: We can just hope that if such a legislation comes into place, it's not going to cause so many problems. As meaningful use has with the whole problem of interoperability, which is uh, on a holiday in, in in the U.S. It seems.
1: <laughs> That's right. Uh, I've seen healthcare systems um, uh, almost broken um, by their move to electronic medical records. So uh, a lot of these things are easier said than done.
0: But there are some positive examples of new insurance models. Uh, we already talked about uh, employers starting um, healthcare services, or there's uh, new insurance models such as Oscar Healthcare. There's still a lot going on around blockchain. So I don't know, um, maybe that's going to be some form of improvement, even if in a just small share of the problem.
1: There's also some fascinating work around telehealth and telemedicine, uh, accessing healthcare care uh, from a distance across state lines. Uh, these are some other the issues that I work on. Um, you know, Oscar, you mentioned, isn't, is you know, this app based system that patients seem to love being able to, you know, get healthcare care on their own terms in their own place uh, and and hopefully at, at lower costs. Uh, this cool. is, so this is I agree. This is a, a wave to, to watch.
0: Uh, I recently had an interview with a patient advocate, Grace Cordovano, and I loved when in one of her interviews, she said that if there was one thing that she could change in the healthcare system, it would be waiting, you know, and all these applications, all these uh different approaches to accessing healthcare providers uh, and healthcare as such is, in my opinion, uh, potentially bringing patients their lives back because they can spend less time in the healthcare system and more time actually doing what they're interested in doing.
1: That's right. But I have to say, as a law professor, one of our challenges in the U.S. is a, is the federal fragmentation of, of 50 states. Uh, the practice of medicine is regulated at the state level. Um, and, uh, so one of the challenges for these innovative, disruptive forms of healthcare, including telemedicine, is, is these state-based licensure and these state-based regulations, which make it more, more complicated to scale up investment and, and move across state lines. Um, so that's a, another challenge we have in the U.S. is that the federal government, although I think it has constitutional power to, uh, to preempt and make space here, it so far hasn't done so. And so, um, innovators are really kind of stymied by the, the the range of varying state laws.
0: According to your knowledge, do you know which state is more most digitally advanced or progressive in terms of healthcare?
1: I mean, my impression—I don't have any uh, basis for this uh, empirically—but my impression is that the bigger states, the more popular states. Have advantages, um, uh, because they can reach that economy of scale that's more d- difficult in smaller fragmented states. So California actually has a telehealth legislation. Um, New York, uh, is, is doing innovative things with companies like Oscar. So I do think the, the highly populous states are, are ahead of the others
0: which is kind of ironic knowing that telemedicine has most potential for the rural areas and it's always marked as a solution for those that are far away from healthcare providers physically.
1: Yeah and and we we are seeing that here I'm based at the University of Arizona and uh, we have typically been uh, a national leader in telemedicine. Um, In fact, some of the initial work was done in in looking at how to provide telemedicine to astronauts in space. Some of those same technologies have been used to provide telemedicine to um, uh, Indian tribes on reservations hundreds of miles away from Tucson. Uh, But even then, it tends to be on sort of a hub and spoke model where the hubs are within the very same state. Uh, It becomes much more complicated to provide Across state lines to reach truly rural areas, in in you know further out.
0: To wrap up and to go back to your topic of cost exposure in in healthcare, if there was one thing that uh, you could decide that should be the first thing to do when it comes to changing the whole conundrum around healthcare and uh, costs, what would it be? So where do you think? politicians or policymakers should start? You know, in
1: the book, I outline three, what I ultimately call technocratic reforms. We've already talked about adjusting cost exposure to the value of care. We've talked about making cost exposure more transparent. I also suggest we should adjust it for individual patients. So lower income patients should have lower cost exposure but what I'd really rather see is um, uh, politicians and policy makers and insurance designers have a little more guts, a little more courage, and just eliminate cost exposures across the board. We're gonna pay for the healthcare one way or the other. I'm not saying the healthcare is gonna be free, but it makes a lot more sense to pay it through premiums and taxes than through payments um, out of pocket or at the point of service. So that would be what I you know, think is, is the right approach is to just turn your back on this whole cost exposure experiment, which has failed.
0: You've been listening to Faces of Digital Health. To find out more, search through topics or subscribe by going to www.facesofdigitalhealth.com. Also, if you like the show, do leave a rating or a review, even if it's just a word or a sentence, wherever you listen to your podcast. Any opinion and suggestion is the fuel for the show. By the way, Faces of Digital Health is a proud member of the Health Podcast Network, the place to go to if you're interested in even more healthcare, medicine or medtech-related content. So just go to www.healthpodcastnetwork.com and see what kind of shows are out there addressing healthcare, medicine, and other health-related topics. Stay tuned.